Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. It is my pleasure to introduce uh, you, Dr. Kaplan, to um, everyone who's tuned in. We got 110 people tuned in with us this morning. Uh, Dr. Kaplan is a professor of urology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and he's the director of the Men's Health and Wellness Program. Uh, I'm sure many of you recognize Dr. Kaplan's name from his um, editorials in the Journal of Urology, where he is on the editorial board, and he has recently um, taken over as the uh, chair of um, uh, research for the American Urological Association. So we are very lucky to have him uh, um, with us today, teaching us about BPH and the elderly and BPH uh, updates. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan, for joining us. Um, I just want to start out by asking you briefly, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your career path and, and how you got to where you are today. <laughs> uh, I mean, this morning I took a shower. Oh, uh, I don't know how, <laughs> how specific you guys want to get. Um, <laughs> well, I would say that I've um, I've not had a typical career path, uh, which has been kind of fun. And uh, given what's going on now with the COVID situation, uh, it kind of dovetails with my whole philosophy about career, and that is there are no rules, <laughs> um, and you kind of uh, figure it out as you go and you have your own goals in terms of what you want to do. And, you know, for the residents who, and other folks who are on, uh, on this uh, Zoom call, what I would say to you is the opportunities are enormous right now. And some of you are there saying, what the hell is this guy talking about? Um, and this is the wild, this is going to be the Wild West, and you can help redefine healthcare. Um, and the one thing about rules are break them, change them, um, and that's okay. Um, and if you have an entrepreneurial bent like I do, um, I think there's enormous opportunity to redefine how we practice, how we do things. And this ain't, you, you know, your grandfather's urology and this ain't your grandfather's or grandmother's medicine. And that's fun. Uh, in fact, I've had a couple of residents from in the city um, uh, reach me because they had interesting entrepreneurial ideas. And I love that. And uh, just really cool stuff in terms of what we're doing. And I think it's, there's just enormous opportunity. And what's been very, very good through all of this horror and tragedy and sorrow uh, that's been going on, um, I've never really been more optimistic about at least the science and health part of things because I, I think I've never seen such synergy in so many different groups to try to find cures and management uh, of this uh, ter you know, terrible process that we're having. And I think that the opportunities for discovery are going to be enormous. And literally each generation defines itself by how they react to, in a sense, bad things. Uh, it was true after World War II, and I think it's going to be true now. And for those of you, use this time as an opportunity to change or think about how you can change the game, as the case may be. And uh, certainly at the AUA, uh, when we've you know, fully, fully engaged, we're going to use uh, science, we're going to use discovery, we're going to use industry to set up incubators and thought tanks 
uh, because I think we have to really re reconnoiter in terms of the way we do things. I think management, I think partnerships with the healthcare system, this RVU stuff is to me cuckoo and nonsense. And I think uh, partnership with physician engagement and physician sort of, uh, you know, risks and rewards are going to be the future. Look at telehealth, remote diagnostics. I, I, I think there's just enormous opportunity. And most people are going to follow. If they're going to be leaders in, on this telephone call, there are going to be people who are going to lead, lead and think about those things. So uh, the, the future is actually, once we get through all this, the future is actually pretty bright. That's really great advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaplan. That's awesome. And I think that's really a great way to start out, encouraging, uplifting, and uh, your perspective is, uh, is really awesome. Uh, so I'll, I'll turn the podium over to you and you can start your talk. We'll try to leave about five or 10 minutes for the end. We uh, have people submit questions through the chat feature and um, I'll throw them at you at the end. Sure. Well, well, thank Great. you. So thanks. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you to, uh, to the team uh, uh, for their kind invite. I, I really appreciate uh, contributing in a very small way to uh, your education. And my goal is at the end of the day, um, or at the end of this hour, is I want you all to leave with more questions than answers. And if I've done that, I've done a good job. Um, so let's talk a little bit about at least what I'm going to try to share with you. And that is the role of not so much BPH medical therapy. I'm going to go over some of the data with you, uh, but really how we're going to change things in the future. And you know, we've been trained when I when I was a resident at Columbia a couple of years ago, um, we were trained to do TORPs for patients who had symptoms. And then in the early 90s, when medical therapy, which is kind of where I put my stake in the ground, uh, at least initially, uh, that became the way of thinking. And then there was minimally invasive therapies, and then they went away, and then they came back. And this notion of just giving medical therapy to people forever, uh, to me, didn't make a lot of sense. And with the advent of alternative therapies, and we'll talk about some of them, I think there's an opportunity in terms of what we do as well. So this is a quote, uh, and actually you probably would never guess who this is from, uh, but it is a concept that I certainly believe in, and that is challenging conventional wisdom all the time. And this was by someone, uh, Vincent uh, Bugliosi, who actually was the uh, DA in Los Angeles who convicted uh, uh, Charles Manson. Now you're thinking, what the hell is Kaplan talking about Charles Manson? It's nothing to do with Charles Manson. It's the concept of challenging the way we actually do things. So how do you define medical treatment failure? And it really depends on the definition uh, because what you may think is, med is medical treatment failure or failure with a treatment be it for BPH or for ED or for cancer may not be what the patient thinks. And we always forget there's two people in this equation. It's what you think is not working but it's what the patient thinks is also not working, particularly for quality of life disorders, that's very important as well. So I think the, the, what I'd like to, at least as I start all of this, is for you to be able to think and challenge yourself in terms of the way you've been taught to do things and how we can really accurately assess how we do things. And there's nothing wrong, and you're gonna hear this theme throughout, challenge and challenge and don't accept, don't accept. I mean, there's certain things you accept. Yeah, you're, the heart's on your uh, left side for, for most people. You got two arms and two legs. I'm not trying to ch challenge that. But the way we manage things and the way, you know, dogma is just that. It's dogma, it's for the dogs. And you can go and you can change things. And I think that's, this is kind of uh, where we're gonna go with this in terms of how at least I've evolved in terms of how I wanna treat things. So, the traditional ways of assessing is certainly 
if you want to switch to another therapy, well, that's because a patient failed, whether it's missed or surgery or watchful waiting. So why do patients actually fail medical therapy? Well, the most common reason is, I'm not getting better, doc. Do something for me. And my symptoms are not getting better. Are all alpha blockers the same? And that's the most commonly used medication. Are there differences among the five alpha reductase inhibitors? Uh, do some of the other agents, such as PD-5 inhibitors and anti-muscarinic agents, really work? Intolerable side effects. Patients say, look, I, I'm dizzy or I have sexual dysfunction. And progression of disease. Patients go into retention or they have hematuria, recurrent infection. So these are the most common reasons why patients would actually go to a different type of therapy, urinary retention as well. So symptoms are not relieved. Why wouldn't symptoms not be relieved? Well, are alpha blockers, do they always work? Are they always the same? We tend to interchange them all the time. Uh, is Diet Coke the same as Diet Pepsi? Are there differences among the 5-alpha-reductase inhibitors, uh, finasteride and dutasteride? The combination of a, with a PDE5 may not be effective. It may help for sexual dysfunction, but it may not be for urinating problems. And antimuscarinics and beta-3 agonists target the bladder. One other thing, and I'm not going to talk about today because in the interest of time, generic drugs. We've been told, well, you, a generic is the same. No, generic is not the same. Generics can be 80 to 120% of the original active substance, but a generic is not the same. And I have found often, and in fact, some of the early studies we did when, when I was uh, faculty at Columbia, we found that actually generics reduced sometimes in about a third of patients the efficacy and for finasteride, the drop in PSA was less with the generic than it was with the branded. That's a whole nother problem that we're having in terms of generic medication and their efficacy. Obviously, they're a lot less costly, that's for sure. But that's a concept that we're going to have to deal with in terms of the branding of generics, because generics are not all made in the same place. And you know, not to get into what's going to be in the future, but it, as our supply chain changes and we may be producing more things here in the United States versus China or uh, India or Ireland, which is a major place also for drug production, that will be an interesting topic in the future. Uh, so when we talk about medical therapy, we talk about how to manage lower urinary tract symptoms, sexual dysfunction, and metabolic disorders. And in the interest of time, again, we won't talk about the role of men's health and metabolic dysfunction, but there's certainly an important interplay both on the epidemiologic, pathophysiologic, and pharmacotherapeutic way of the way we manage things. So this is a treatment algorithm, and this comes actually from the AU, but the AU is the BPH guidelines, which uh, uh, for those who will tune in to the uh, webinars from the AUA, I'll be presenting the update on the BPH guidelines. But this is kind of a, an interesting way of looking at it. And for the most part, this is kind of what we do. Uh, and it can vary anywhere from watchful waiting to uh, alpha blockers, adding an anti-muscarinic agent, 5-ARIs, desmopressin for nocturia. And again, we can talk about that during the question session. But this is kind of a traditional standard way that we've been managing uh, over the last five to seven years, patients with urinating symptoms. Interestingly, talk about dogma. So uh, when I was a resident, Dr. Carl Olson was my chair. And I can tell you that if I was a resident or an early attending, and I would have said, well, why don't we give an anti-muscarinic to, to men? I mean, when they have kind of urgency and frequency, I probably would have been thrown out of the department because that was antithesis to the indications for an anticholinergic or an anti-muscarinic. And now uh, it is one of the standard therapies. So 
as you can see just from here, things are constantly evolving. There's a lot of reasons why men have lower urinary tract symptoms. The most common reasons we have is usually, it depends on the age of the patient, of course, it's going to be related to their prostate. But patients who have predominant nocturia, you, giving them Flomax is not gonna really help them. And I think we constantly do that. We constantly forget that it's not a constellation of symptoms, it's the bothersome symptom we have to focus on. We forget that. So if a patient has a lot of urgency, well, focus on the urge part. If a patient has a lot of nocturia, focus on the nocturia part. So as we look at pharmacologic options, we can either target the bladder, and usually antimuscarinics or beta-3 agonists are what is approved for those. PD-5 inhibitors, we're not sure where they work. And frankly, if you've read some of the editorials that Alex was talking about, I'm not a big fan of PD-5 inhibitors in the, for BPH. I think they certainly work for erectile function or dysfunction uh, and targeting the, the prostate, which would be alpha blockers and 5-ARI. So this is kind of, again, the traditional algorithm that we actually see. So surgical options, there are office-based, Resume, uh, Urolift, ITIND, most of them are ambulatory based. We do them in our offices and we also have an anesthesiologist there, uh, but you can do them under local with the prostate block. They were originally touted just for high-risk patients, obviously, I guess everybody is a high-risk patient because so much of it is being done and they have less morbidity than traditional surgery. And then there are advanced invasive options. Again, in the interest of time, I'm not gonna discuss those. I'm more than happy to take questions on them, but uh, laser prostatectomy and bipolar and monopolar, and aquablation, which is kind of a cool technique. And uh, for those of you who have actually participated in it, it's a great option for patients with very large prostates. And the days of simple prostatectomy may be going away. So the technology is based on, for the most part, uh, with, at least with surgical, is removing tissue. And this can be done in various ways. Uh, whether you clip it, whether you staple it. And I've seen all and participated in all of them. I, uh, you can freeze it, you can heat it, you can staple it, you can clip it, you can uh, microwave it, you can do all these things. Sometimes you think if you spit at the prostate, some of it's going to go away as well. Uh, but there have been a host of very interesting technologies that have been looked at. Some have uh, withstood the test of time, and a lot of that has to do less with efficacy and more with reimbursement but nevertheless, they're here to stay in some degree. There's at least uh, eight other minimally invasive therapies that I'm involved in that I'm aware of uh, that will come to, I don't know if they'll ever come to market, but at least some of them will impact the way we actually do things. And these are the FDA approved ones. Uh, uh, and some of you may have participated in your own programs with seeing these, but uh, these are here to stay. Uh, these are some of the investigational stents, balloon dilation therapy. It's a very interesting technique we're involved with. Histotripsy, I don't think is going to happen. And these intraprostatic injections have not seemed to work. So let's now go to the medical side. And I'm going to do this not to just, you know, tout these, but at least I want you to think about how we kind of robotically, no pun intended, uh, do things all the time, but think about why we're we actually doing some of the things we're actually doing. So alpha blockers, and this is kind of a summary slide, uh, they, uh, the most commonly used medical therapy, uh, they prevent clinical symptomatic progression of BPH based on the MCOPS trial. They work for the most part. Uh, they're not home runs, but they manage a lot of patients. Uh, the efficacy, and this is, a, uh, this is kind of a, a boardish type of question for you. The reduction in IPSS is about a third to 40%. Flow rate improvement is about 20 to 25% increase. Uh, and they work pretty quickly. The differences among the alpha blockers, I'll show you a couple of minutes, is not in terms of how well they work, 
but more in terms of side effects. And by the way, that is true for virtually every medication. Despite what you may see on television or you read in advertisements, talk about their drug, really most drugs in the class work about the same. And that's true whether it's statins, whether it's uh, uh, antihypertensives and anti-anxiety drugs, it's really the side effect profile that's a little bit different. So if you look here, and this is just uh, a demonstration of that, doxazosin, uh, terazin, and tamsulosin, they pretty much overlap with respect to improvements in symptoms and flow rate. Uh, this is alfusosin, uh, which was marketed as uroxyphilidosin, which is marketed as rapaflow. And again, pretty similar improvements compared to placebo. And I show this to you just so you understand that the differences between these agents have uh, not really to do in terms of their own efficacy. It's about a three-point improvement in IPSS and about a one to two milliliter per second improvement in flow rate. So symptoms are not relieved in some of these patients. And as I said at the outset, is that because they are all the same or are there differences among these agents? And in fact, just from a teleologic perspective, they may be the wrong medication for the type of symptoms that a patient actually has. Let's talk now about side effects. So if you look at the left side, and these are the host of different agents that are out there. The differences in, for example, asthenia, which is weakness or headache or sexual dysfunction, is very different among them. For example, tamsulosin, which has about a 6% retrograde ejaculation rate, rapaflow is about 18 to 20%. That's a lot different than uroxetrol or alfusosin or terazosin or doxazosin that tend to have more cardiovascular or syncope and headache type of side effects. So sometimes that will drive that. So is it reasonable for patients if they try one alpha blocker to go to another? The answer is sure. Uh, but it's kind of like understanding that sometimes it's the side effects that drive which one we do. Now, these are the five alpha reductase inhibitors and the differences between finasteride, which is a type two only, and dutasteride, which is a type one and two. And these, these have been around forever. In fact, <clears throat> at the beginning of my career, uh, which happened a couple of years ago. Uh, finasteride is where I kind of started. And uh, I was one of the investigators on the finasteride trials. And I learned, and I've had experience of more than 25 years using this type of medication. And they certainly shrink prostates. There's no question about that. But in terms of some of the downstream consequences, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, that may be something that limits their usage. So here's dutasteride, um, which is Avidart, um, and this, you can see the improvement is about 6.5 points. You say, well, hold it, Kaplan, you just said that an alpha blocker is three or four points. But just remember, a lot of this is driven by very large prostates. So the patient, the patient in this pool all had prostate sizes of 30 or more, which represent about half the patients with BPH uh, based on the MTOPS trial. So about half the patients actually wouldn't even improve with medications like this. And usually we reserve these types of medications for patients with larger than 40 or 50 grams. The efficacy, and again, this is kind of a take home slide in terms of efficacy. Uh, you usually need to be on them for a while, anywhere from six to 12 months. Prostates don't grow in a day, they don't shrink in a day. So long-term treatment is necessary. And there's about a 15 to 30% reduction in IPSS in a large group of men as opposed to what we saw with an alpha blocker, but prostate size is reduced anywhere from 20 to 30%. Symptom reduction is dependent on prostate size. And usually for patients with less than 40 gram prostates, it's really not gonna work that well, at least in terms of managing symptoms. 
So it really depends on baseline prostate size, and you can use whatever proxy you want for a large prostate, whether it's your finger, whether it's a PSA, whether it's prostate volume, but in actually some of the trials, you can see that sometimes you need to get up to as high as 60 grams to have a really significant effect. So 5-ARIs have become almost a secondary medication in terms of managing the BPH, but certainly they help to reduce hematuria or bleeding and the risk for urinary retention. Here's the problem though. These medications are fraught with side effects. <laughs> and this comes from their own um, pivotal trials and follow-up studies. Erectile dysfunction and uh, altered ejaculation is really high. And this comes from their data. And I can tell you in the real world, it's much higher. Anywhere from 15 to 20% of patients will have some degree of sexual dysfunction, which is a game changer for a lot of men and they don't wanna stay on the medication. The big one is libido and decreased ejaculate. Erectile dysfunction to some degree, but a lot of patients complain of decreased libido. And you can see that from, for the most part, these occur early on. Uh, later on, uh, these types of side effects are less and less likely. But within the first year or year and a half, patients are gonna note it. And frankly, for a lot of patients, that's the reason they go off of that. In a study we did um, about, uh, oh, about 10, 15 years ago, we, we did a five-year study. So today, this is the longest follow-up of men who have been on five ARIs. And as the pivotal studies show, prostate volume reduced about 26%, symptom score reduction about three uh, to four points. Uh, and at 12 months, it was about five points with a flow rate improvement of about 1.7 to 2.0. So that's all good. That's all great. Uh, in terms of efficacy. The problem was this. If you looked at the number of patients who withdrew because of sexual dysfunction, it was pretty high. And in the dutasteride group, it was, uh, for various reasons, uh, almost 15%. And that's one of the li limiting factors about using these agents long-term. Mustarinic receptor antagonists uh, target the bladder. And this is kind of a place where uh, we did a lot of work uh, about 10 to 15 years ago. We published a, 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 a pivotal study in uh, JAMA in 2006. And again, the, the take home message is that men have bladders too, because most overactive bladder agents are targeted towards women. And uh, most, uh, most men who have urinating symptoms get either an alpha blocker or a five ARI, but men can also benefit if they have primary things like urgency and urgent continence. And again, I'm just gonna run through a couple of studies because the pivotal points are uh, looking at other things besides medical therapy and why medical therapy long-term may not be the best way of looking at it. So for men with urgency or urgent continence or frequency, these can be very, very effective. This is using sulfenosine, which is Vesicare, but it's true for virtually all of them. And you can see uh, these are various studies that have been involved using various types of antimuscarinic agents. Uh, one of the questions that occurs is, well, if you're going to give an antimuscarinic to a man, they're going to go into retention. And again, that was dogma. And in fact, the rates of urinary retention are less than, uh, for the most part, 1% or 2%. And if you take a group of men above the age of 50 and you just follow them, the rates of urinary retention spontaneously in men is about 1% to 2% per year. So uh, antimuscarinics are not adding to that. And this comes from an interesting database uh, in the UK where most men who had uh, urinary retention, it occurred early. So if, which is why, if you're gonna give these types of agents, follow that patient up in the first month, because if they're gonna go south, that's when they're gonna go south. Now, combination therapy, and this is from our work uh, in the JAMA study, work a little bit better. So 
Now you're giving two potential medications for a patient. And think about in your own uh, residency, how many patients, how many men you've seen who are on multiple therapies for quality of life disorder. I have men who come to me who are on an alpha blocker, a 5-ARI, and a PD-5 inhibitor uh, for urinating problems. And that's a lot of medications because you get up at night a couple of times. And yet, we see this over and over again. But certainly, combination therapies seem to work a little bit better in the proper patient. So we've talked about symptoms maybe not being relieved in some men, intolerable side effects in some men. BPH progression is probably a major reason why patients wind up having different types of therapy. Uh, either the symptoms don't get better, the need for surgery, and progression. And this comes from MTOPS. And uh, for those, again, on the call, this is a study you should read about. It's one of the real pivotal studies in urology. Uh, it was published in, I think, 2003. And we were one of the investigators uh, for this trial. And clearly medications, particularly combination of medications, can prevent progression of disease. But um, alpha blockers, 5-ARIs, and combinations are certainly very effective in doing that. The rates of urinary retention are more likely to be affected not by an alpha blocker, but by a 5-ARI. Why? Because you shrink in the prostate. Smaller prostates tend to have less likely to retention than a big prostate. And that's what you find I'm sure in your own experiences uh, in the clinics, uh, when you see that most of the men who go into retention have bigger prostates. So that's kind of makes sense. This is from the COMBAT trial, which used a different combination. It used, it used tamsulosin and dutasteride, same idea. Now, interestingly enough, it took 15 months for the alpha blocker to meet the 5-ARI, excuse me, combination, and at 18 months, there was superiority. So the notion of combination therapy for the right prostate, reasonable. And this is based on prostate volume at baseline. So as you can see, really the patients who uh, were at higher risk for retention tended to have higher prostates, uh, higher prostate volumes. So things that kind of are, you would think were, were obvious, in fact, came true. Adverse events is the problem. And a lot of these patients have things like erectile dysfunction and dizziness. Uh, postural hypotension, which is more driven by the alpha blocker, but now take the side effects of one drug and then add it to a second drug, and these are not, these don't wash away. They're usually additive. Then throw a third drug in, and you can have anywhere from 15 to 20% of side effects. But look at the amount of ejaculation disorders, which was 8.4%, 7.4% erectile dysfunction. A lot of these patients have side effects which preclude long-term use and quality of life, which is another metric which we've been using over the last five, uh, 10 uh, to 12 years, is also affected when patients are having a lot of these sexual side effects. So patients are bothered. You may think it's not important to them. It is important to them. And it's a reason why patients will not stay on these types of medical therapies for long term. And you can see here that the rates are much higher in the combination therapy uh, arm versus the single arm therapy, and certainly less than what we see in placebo. So with all of that, that's medical therapy. So why do patients stay on medical therapy? Well, it's interesting that they've kind of been trained in a certain sense. Uh, certain things are um, Pavlovian almost with the medical treatment, whether it's 
hypertension, dyslipidemia, but other things are uh, done with once a month patches and creams. I and mean, women with estrogen therapy uh, don't necessarily take pills for them because that's been the way it's been, it's been given. So what I wanna do is challenge the way we actually do things. And then I'll give you kind of my own thoughts about if I were the patient, what I would do. So this is data from the Eurolift studies uh, and I don't know if many of you have been exposed to either seeing them or doing them, but basically this is a staple that staples open the prostate. And I was involved with this even before it was involvement uh, because I knew the inventor uh, of this, uh, who was the person who did a fellowship with me uh, or an observation fellowship. He worked at the pharmaceutical company, then he developed, uh, I think he now has about 130 patents, one, a really brilliant guy. And he was involved with, with the thought about doing this and it works for those patients who have it, uh, the AUA symptom score improves and flow rate improves. Now, the question is durability, and that's a whole different area that we can discuss in the question section, but certainly, at least in the short term, this seems to work. Uh, this is data from the Resume, which is a heat therapy. Uh, and again, IPSS improves, flow rate improves, and now we have durability. Now, one thing that just, when you analyze data, don't believe what either I tell you, don't believe what a paper tells you when you, when you do this in Journal Club, always look at the statistical methodology because that's where the money is in terms of the data. It's not what the authors conclude. It's kind of what you should conclude based on how the study is actually done. So for example, when you do a therapy with medical therapy, uh, there's something called an intent to treat analysis. So for, let's say you develop a concept for a drug that is going to make uh, sexual function better. Uh, and then you randomize them versus placebo. Every patient in the study, whether they finish on the study or they continue with the medication is analyzed. It's called an intent to treat analysis with last observation carried forward. So basically everybody is in that data set. However, with minimally invasive therapy, I'm gonna go back one, only the patients who actually come back for follow-up are analyzed. So for example, it's only the good, the good ones who come back, the responders who come back. The non-responders are not included in the data analysis. So data from minimally invasive and surgical therapies are always gonna look a little bit better because you're taking the cream of the cream uh, because the, lost to the patients who are lost to follow-up or go to other therapies, their data is not incorporated. And this is true for every minimally invasive therapy, certainly for BPH. And this is again from the resume trial. So now that I've given you kind of the landscape of what's actually going on, let me kind of have you think a little bit about have we looked at it in the right way. So we've talked about medical treatment failure. I've talked about symptom progression, urinary retention, adverse events. We've really focused on the BPH, bladder urinating issues, efficacy, or progression of disease. Is that really the right way of looking at it? And this is tradition. And in fact, I helped to define this tradition. Uh, when I was one of the investigators for MTOPS, we were sitting around literally at a bar in Washington saying, how are you gonna define medical therapy failure. Um, and we came up with a four-point decrease in IPSS, a four-point in, uh, increase in IPSS. How did we get that? Literally, it was almost arbitrary and capricious. <laughs> and yet, that became dogma in terms of how we actually did that. So a lot of this has been, in a, self, in a sense, self-proclaimed and uh, self-fulfilling prophecies. One of the other things we've talked about is whether we should intervene early. Because remember, uh, in 1990, the life expectancy for patients was less, and patients had not been on medical therapy 
for years and years. Now that uh, people can live up to the age of 78, 79, although life expectancy has decreased in the last three or four years in the United States, you, you are, if you're giving a man who's 52 or 53 medical therapy, you are then potentially having a person take a, a treatment for 10, 15, 20 years for a quality of life disorder. Does that really make sense in terms of how we're doing things? So this represents the change in prostate volume uh, over four years in patients who were treated. So if you're managing them, you probably will get some degree of, uh, of diminution in, uh, in prostate volume changes. But if you look at the placebo arms in all these trials, look how much prostates grow over four years, anywhere from 15 to 20%. So prostates keep growing, they keep growing, and they keep growing. Um, and particularly if you're giving them just an alpha blocker, you may be relieving some of their symptoms temporarily, but the prostates continue to grow. Does that kind of make sense, particularly when you are on a long-term therapy? Early data showed that most patients actually uh, stay on medical therapy, particularly if it's an alpha blocker. But in the real world today, that doesn't happen. So a drug like Lipitor or Crestor, which are statins, only about 50% of patients, about, excuse me, 40% of patients are on them in a year. And these kind of actually save lives, you know, decreased heart attack, decreased strokes. These drugs actually do make a difference. And yet people go off of them. An anti-muscarinic for overactive bladder, about 20% of patients will still be on them. So not only are we giving them something, a lot of patients go off of them anyway, uh, or they don't take them all the time. And that's in the United States. In China, for example, where it's harder for patients to get prescriptions, they may just take a 30-day therapy. So now there's emerging data on long-term consequences. And that's what I really want to focus on because I want you to challenge and think about the way we do things day to day doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, there's been data about dementia, depression, suicide risk. Now, interestingly enough, the analysis of long-term medical ther therapy really didn't start with the BPH world. It started with the statin world. And there was a lot of data about depression uh, and dementia and it's questionable long-term if that actually happens, but cognitive issues, certainly with long-term use of statins is now being looked at. Uh, Antihypertensive long-term use is being looked at because patients are now living longer and we have databases that are looking at these patients for a long period of time. So now these long-term consequences are being evaluated and we have to really think about, does it make sense for us to put a patient on a therapy that they're gonna be on for 10, 15 or 20 years? And that's what I really want to challenge you with. So these cognitive issues are real. And this is true for a, of a host of different types of medical types of therapy. And cognitive issues are becoming a big part of our uh, medical costs. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, which really unfortunately doesn't have a, a treatment cost, is exploding in terms of managing these patients because we can. And then they're put into different types of facilities and managing that, which is a whole different type of problem. And you can see from the COVID-19 experience what, what has happened with these poor folks in nursing homes. So how we manage this and trying to prevent some of these things are gonna be very, very important in the future. So as I said at the outset, there are no rules and that's why we have to define, help define that. How do we accept criteria uh, for medical treatment failure? It's always been urology focused in terms of a progression of disease and intolerable side effects. So as I said before, look at the long-term use of statins. And 
I don't know if any of you, you probably, most of you are too young to be on a statin, but patients and the number of patients have statin-associated muscle symptoms, muscle cramps. Is it what's called a nocebo effect? And again, we can talk about that more in the question and answer session, but the nocebo effect is when patients sometimes expect to have something after they're getting the medication, they wound up having that. So uh, for example, when patients were randomized to a statin versus placebo, they were told in the conformed consent, one of the side effects, if you're randomized to a statin is you may have muscle pain. So guess what happened? Once they went into an open label and uh, an open label study where everybody knew they were getting a statin, a lot of patients all of a sudden developed uh, muscle symptoms because they kind of expected to get that. So it's kind of these negative expectations about the effects of using these. But yet, these were important in terms of the, the labeling of a lot of these types of medications. So sometimes we over-attribute an adverse event rather than examine other possible causes. So are these cognitive effects, for example, that I'm going to show you with alpha blockers and with 5-ARIs due to the drug or because the expectation that patients getting older may have a lot of these issues? So cognitive function has changed, and there's a lot of theoretical reasons of, uh, of dyslipidemia and insulin resistance being a prelude, if you will, to cognitive issues. And I'm not going to get into this where uh, I'm hardly an expert on statin use, but I, I just want to demonstrate to you that a lot of different verticals within the medical space are looking at these long-time effects. So there is an associated risk between high cholesterol and Alzheimer's disease, and there is a conflicting hypothesis if statins help or are a detriment. So the FDA concluded that there was no direct effect, but labeling was important. And it is an issue that when a patient is put on the stand, particularly an older patient, that's something that needs to be discussed. So that pathway and that runway was established for other medications and now it's being looked at in our world, in the medications we actually use. So in 5-alpha reductase inhibitors have been a host of data. Uh, there's a hypothetical link between a 5-ARI and depression. And it has to do with the synthesis of neuroactive steroids and modulating them. And it's kind of an interesting concept of why, why that actually may happen. And this dysregulation may lead to depression. Now, <laughs> we also know that men with low testosterone as they get older can also have kind of some of these depression and cognitive issues as well. So hormones are kind of important and, and mucking around with those hormones long-term may have an effect as well. And there's certainly, as we know, a positive association between cognitive function and androgens. So this came from a study from, in, published in JNCI. There was a linkage between Medicare claims and PCPT. That was the, uh, a, a large study looking at finasteride to prevent prostate cancer. There's a, so in subsequent post hoc analyses, there was a 10% higher rate of depression in that group. In another study, uh, this was over uh, more than 93,000 Canadian men using either finasteride or dutasteride. And as soon as almost one and a half years in an older group, there was increased suicide attempts until 18 months of follow-up. And that's because they didn't have the data. And depression and self-harm were increased in this group of men. In a group of, in Poland, they had a 1.5-fold increased rate of depression. Now, some of these were younger men, and some of these men were getting finasteride for alopecia use. And perhaps this is a different type of subset at baseline. Uh, but nevertheless, that data set does actually exist. Uh, in another study, in former users of finasteride, these post-finasteride syndrome uh, patients, again, younger group of men, they had higher rates of depression and suicide. So part of the problem in analyzing this is the problem in analyzing data. 
and that is uh, the assessment of how we uh, assess depression and is different for, in different studies, the medication duration, controls versus non-controls in some of the study. But the bottom line is there is a real possibility of 5-ARI use and decreased cognitive function. And it's a discussion I now have with the man uh, and whoever's coming with them uh, for, for information that you may long-term have decreased cognitive function. So it's something we need to be aware of. Now, it's not in the label yet, but I think in the future, it's something that we have to think about. And it should be part of the shared decision-making. Now, there was some early data with Tamsulosin a couple of years ago. It was a very controversial study that showed in Medicare data uh, that men taking Tamsulosin had a uh, perhaps higher rates of cognitive issues. And this was compared to men on dutasteride, no BPH medication, and other alpha blockers as well. And the bottom line was, in a, in a pretty long follow-up, uh, the Tamsulosin cohort had an incidence of depression, uh, dementia, excuse me, higher than the other groups. Now, this was really kind of a stake in the ground with respect to a drug that we use a lot. And if this is true, that's a bit of a problem. Now, there were other studies that came out that, that challenged this. This was a study that actually I wrote the editorial on in the U in Journal of Urology uh, that showed that probably there was no increased incidence of dementia. So I think the word is still out about the alpha blockers. The mean follow-up in this case was uh, a, a long-term use. So, so uh, in their study, there was no significant differences in the Tamsulosin group. So I think the jury is still out about alpha blockers. I think it's a little bit more worrisome in the five ARIs. And finally, I'll leave you with this, anticholinergics. Now, we've focused on men, but we know that oxybutynin is a terrible drug. It's a horrible drug. And it causes, it's effective in terms of urgency short-term, but long-term use, there's been a host of data about uh, uh, dementia. And in fact, if you look at the beer criteria, um, oxybutynin is one of the most highly cited drugs to cause dementia. And yet, if you write a medication for a patient, most pharmaceutical companies, uh, most, uh, excuse me, prescription plans are going to mandate that the patient actually has to be on an anticholinergic before, uh, of oxybutyn before they go on other medications. It's, it's, as we say, as my children say, it's cray-cray. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And yet we're giving these patients long-term oxybutyn. Uh, this comes from a JAMA study from, uh, from last year uh, that assessed the association between anticholinergic and the risk of dementia in persons 55 or older. We're not talking about you know, patients who you normally assess for risk of dementia, you're talking about patients who are 55 and older, and it was a lot of cases, uh, about 280,000 some odd cases, most for women, uh, and one to 11 years prior to the diagnosis of dementia. And you can see a, a significant increased rate of dementia attributed to the medication. So while I don't have a problem with using these medications short-term, why would you use these medications long-term? So again, we get back to what we're defining as medical treatment failure. And that's really the important thing that I want to bring you about is that we have, what, when I trained with medical treatment failure in the MTOP studies, it was urology focused. We have to remember that if you put something into some, if somebody puts something into their mouth um, or into, onto their skin, it can have beneficial effects, but it's gonna have effects that you don't always want. 
And I challenge people to really think about whether we really want to use medical therapy long-term for BPH or low urinary tract symptoms secondary to BPH. I've been involved in virtually every medical treatment study. I've either been the first author or the primary investigator or a secondary investigator. I made my mark in urology with BPH medications and I'm challenging what I did. Did I really, is this something that I would wanna have or do I wanna really prescribe this for my patients long-term? So the key points are is that the criteria is arbitrary. And it gets back to the original point when Alex asked me the question about, you know, my, my thoughts about rules. There are no rules. Rules constantly change. And what I want you to always remember is challenge, challenge, challenge. Don't accept things because someone who is a little bit gray hair is telling you that something is true. Uh, things change all the time, all the time. Uh, it's, is it enough if the patient is happy if they don't know what the long-term effects are? Doesn't but medical therapy make sense for a quality of life condition? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure when you have some of these minimally invasive therapies. Uh, does medical therapy make sense if you can have a Eurolift or a Resume or some other therapies that are coming down the world? Uh, we need to define medical failure. And I have written, and I'll tell you, and probably some of you will ask me this question, what would I have done? Uh, so again, uh, I'm of an age where these things actually matter to me. I still remember sexual function still <laughs> at my age. Uh, I would have a minimally invasive therapy. I don't think I'd go on long-term medical therapy for, for BPH at my age. Because uh, I don't want to be on a medication for 20 or 30 years. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think that's changing as well. And these are discussions at least you should be thinking about when you have with your patients. So this is kind of just my general ideas about challenging things. Um, we are evolving and the beauty of discovery is its discovery. And one of the things we're going to be doing, uh, in my role as AUA research chair is I'm going to set up, uh, help set up an incubator, which I hope some of you will join, uh, because I think that's how we progress. And what's today's truth is tomorrow's heresy. And I really believe that that's actually true. And I think it's important for us to challenge how we do things. Don't become a technique-driven person. Become a thinking person. Challenge what we do. It doesn't mean that we don't do a lot of the same things, but don't always accept that because someone told you to do something, that's the way uh, to do things. And I think I'm going to leave you with this last uh, quote. And some of you, uh, and I love this quote, uh, that I reject most conventional wisdom. And the person who said that was me. Uh, so I'll leave you with that. And uh, hopefully you leave here with more questions than answers, because that's what I want. And hopefully you in the future will help define for the next generation what will occur. And then they'll challenge that as well. And that's the beauty of things. Virtually everything that I learned as a resident, as a fellow, I've changed. The only thing that I do the same is a digital rectal exam and how to put an artificial urinary sphincter device. That hasn't changed too much, but virtually everything else has changed. And I'll leave you with one other thought from an entrepreneurial perspective. Have you seen these telehealth and telemedicine has just skyrocketed? Think of remote diagnostics because that's going to be a big place in the future with smart, with watch or with uh, wearable watches and where you can uh, monitor remotely things like blood pressure and heart rate. Um, we're going to be able to do things like flow rate and residual urines from home. And that's going to be a big area in the future. So that will be a place where you can make your mark as well. So again, thanks for your attention. I appreciate it. And I'm open to any questions that you may have. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaplan. That was an awesome talk, amazing perspective. I love the concept of challenging 
your own dogma that <laughs> you you put together. Um, it was it was excellent. There are a bunch of questions here in the chat, so we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Um, we'll start off with uh, Dr. Brandis asked a question. He asked, um, long-term anticholinergics in adults can cause cognitive issues. What about for children with neurogenic bladders who are on Dichapan for uh, life at high doses? Uh, have they seen any developmental delay type? <laughs> great question. And I, I don't have an answer or definitive answer for it. It's a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, probably pediatric urologists uh, would know a little bit more. I've not seen, interestingly enough, so early in my career, I took care of a lot of patients uh, with uh, neurogenic bladders for various, you know, spina bifida patients who then uh, transitioned to adulthood. And I didn't see that. And they had been on anticholinergics a long period of time. Small sample. Um, it'll be an interesting study to actually see, but I did not see that in younger folks, you know, patients in their 20s and 30s. I didn't follow them, obviously, from childhood until they're 70 years old. I haven't been in practice uh, that long, nor will I be. Uh, but I didn't really see those cognitive issues, uh, at least in patients who are on it for 10 or 15 years. Good question. Don't have a good area of study. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, next question. Actually, uh, do me a favor and just uh, stop sharing your screen. Uh, then your picture will come up bigger for everyone. Um, with regard to having PSA values after starting a 5-ARI, uh, what do you, how do you go about this? If you do not know the pre-5-ARI PSA value, how do you monitor PSA levels appropriately? That's from Dr. Uh, Nugu. Okay, so is the question, they, they were on a 5-ARI when they came to you? Um, I think it's with regard to prescribing the the five ARI. Okay. So let, let's just let's just say it's a virgin patient in a sense, it's a virgin to five ARIs. So yes, I get a baseline PSA, and um, and then I monitor them usually at three, six, and twelve months until they're stable, and I'm looking for that fifty percent reduction. Now, interestingly enough, there was a study we did uh, with uh, the group at Cornell uh, about a decade ago, where we found that in patients who did not have that fifty percent, let's say they had a biopsy. So I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but let's say a patient had a biopsy and it was negative. How do you follow these patients? And this was kind of the pre-MRI era. Um, so we would give them a 5-ARI, and if their um, PSA did not dump by 50% within a year, it was a more sensitive metric for detecting cancer on a subsequent biopsy. Almost 40%, 40 to 50%, I think it was 50% of patients who had a negative first biopsy. When we put them on a 5-ARI and their PSA did not drop, as much as we thought, that patient had a much higher risk for, the, uh, for having prostate cancer. I use it almost as a stress test uh, to see how much their PSA actually drops. So that's another way of looking at it. Now, one of the challenges are when they went on generic. So we found that a third of men who had been on a branded 5-ARI, so let's say their PSA was 4, and then you put them on a branded 5-ARI and it goes to 2. Then, because of insurance reasons, they went on generic. A third of those patients had an increase in their PSA. It had nothing to do with cancer. We put them back on the brand, the PSA went back down. So it's a little bit harder, that 50% rule on generics. So I just want to warn folks, it becomes more challenging. So one of the things that I do when things are unexpected, I'll put them back on a brand for three weeks, uh, for three months. And if their PSA dumps back, I'm a little bit more uh, comfortable with that. So that's a challenge with managing that 50% rule. Yeah. Um, with related to that, um, Dr. Schulman asked, "Do you how do you inform patients about potential sexual side effects of five ARIs, knowing that the nocebo effect increases sexual dysfunction by fifteen to thirty percent in and of itself?" 
Yeah, well, I think probably half the patients who walk in already know Seaboat <laughs> because uh, they, they see uh, what's on TV and on radio. Uh, it's true. And, you know, managing expectations is important as well. And we also forget as men get older, their sexual function and erectile function decreases. So there's all of that. But uh, I talk a little bit more about the libido side. And I've noticed more libido issues. Some of the ejaculation issues, a little bit on the erection, the erectile dysfunction, but libido is the big one. And I've noticed, and I've heard that conversation a lot. So sometimes I'll change how often they take the medication. Uh, instead of taking it daily, they may take it uh, every second or third day, particularly with dutasteride, which has a very long half-life of, uh, of 35 days, actually. So we got to play around with it. And again, you're talking about a cohort of patients who at baseline are more at risk to be having sexual dysfunction. So it, there's, there's, hard, there's hardly a hard and fast rule. You just have to engage with them based on their own baseline levels. Gotcha. Um, there are several questions about missed treatments, and I'm sure we could do another whole hour or two just talking about these. But um, a few people are asking about um, using Resume upfront. Uh, one asks, would you use Resume uh, in a patient with a history of acute urinary retention? And then another asks, would you maybe just offer Resume upfront instead of medical management altogether? All right. So let's do the second one first. Um, so have I offered it? The answer is yes. I, I always have a discussion with patients about medical therapy. Uh, and then I go through everything with patients. And uh, some patients say, I don't want to take a pill. I'm not good at it. I don't want to take it. I, my, my, my brother took uh, five ARI and he could never get an erection again. I don't want to be on that or Flomax, et cetera, et cetera. So can, would I offer a minimally invasive therapy first? The answer is yes, as long as the patient I feel understands what's going on and I don't have any problems with that. Um, so, so that's that piece of it. And uh, with respect to uh, urinary retention, I've not done them in urinary retention. There was a recent study that Kevin McCrary's group uh, published that, uh, that suggests that in patients with urinary retention, Resume can help them. I, I won't argue it. I don't have enough of an experience. In general, patients with retention, I find it's hard when you just remove a small portion of tissue for them to go out of retention. Is it worth trying? Sure. Uh, but I don't have a lot of personal experience with it, and I'm not sure that that's the standard of care yet. I think it's reasonable to offer it, patient wants to go with it and they want to wait three more months. If they don't go out of retention, that's fine. That's yeah. Fine. Um, someone asked, uh, what are your thoughts on prostatic artery embolization? Speaking of mistreatments. So not a big fan uh, of them. Um, so again, it depends for what it is. So do I believe in patients who have hematuria that can't be uh, switched or changed and they failed everything else? I think pay is great because you knock out the blood supply. No problem with that. Uh, with, return, with respect to improvement in symptoms, the data has been all over the place, which is part of the problem. And it's been controversial. I mean, there are those who touted that. There was a colleague of mine who now went to Lenox Hill, Art Rastenhead, a, very, a good guy, smart guy. And he's a big, you know, he's a big PA and he and I would, would debate. Uh, and the reason is because there's no mechanism of action that makes sense. And let, let me give you kind of the data here. PAE supposedly shrinks the prostate about 20%. Okay. But so does finasteride. And finasteride's data is nowhere near what PAE is actually, you know, touted to do. Uh, so why? What's the mechanism of action of a PAE? Why does shrinking the entire prostate, if it's PAE, have these great effects as opposed to finasteride and finasteride? So again, the data doesn't make sense. The other problem is radiation. I don't know if people realize how much radiation exposure you have. 
you have on a typical PAE, if you're doing both sides, about, uh, I think it is something on the order of 500 chest x-rays. <laughs> what? That's much radiation. You get a sh uh, well, I was about to say something. A bucket load of radiation. I mean, why would you have that? Now, I, I understand that, uh, and you have the Syria and some other issues. Why would you have so much radiation for something that you could do in five minutes with the Eurolift? I, 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 I don't get it. So, this, do I believe that PAE has a role? The answer is yes. Do I think it's a major in huge? If you had a four hundred gram prostate, you want to shrink it down to make it more amenable to do something else. Okay, I kind of get that too. But as a mainstay of therapy, uh, I think I'll pass on that. That's great. Well, I think that just about wraps up the questions. Um, I want to thank you again, Dr. Kaplan, for your excellent talk. Uh, we are going to post a video of today's presentations uh, later on uh, today on our website. So if anyone knows people who missed the talk and want to hear it, they can check out our website.